Hello and welcome to the Bloodstream Podcast, a show serving the hemophilia, von Willebrand disease, and greater bleeding disorders community, brought to you by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. I'm your patient advocate and host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am your other host, also a healthcare advocate, also a nonprofit <laughs> nerd, Amy Board, reminding you to please speak with a healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. On today's show, Amy and I will present hematologists Len Valentino, Robert Sedonio, and Jonathan Roberts weighing in on the state of science in bleeding disorders right now with audio from the Science Fair hosted session during National Hemophilia Foundation's Bleeding Disorders Conference at the end of last month. The three bleeding disorders medical experts provide some top line updates across the disease and disorder spectrum and share information on resources and additional meetings dedicated to sharing out this information. I love that we're able to run this here on the podcast and a huge shout out to NHF, of course, for providing the audio from that session. Very cool of them. Good call, Amy. Thank you, NHF. Much appreciated. Thanks as well to Spark Therapeutics, the founding sponsor of the Science Fair. Thank you for enabling our work. Listeners can, of course, check out the Science Fair in its virtual format at virtual.thesciencefair.org, or you can just go to thesciencefair.org and click something that'll bring you there. And you can explore more of the science behind gene therapy research by visiting hemophiliaforward.com. Amy. Yes. Since we last recorded in real time together, in uh, real time. we both had some time away. Well, we both of our voices were on the show last week, but it's been a couple weeks since we've actually recorded. Touché. We've had time away. We've both come back. Mm-hmm. The world's continued to spin. Things keep happening. Conferences keep starting. There's lots going on. And I'm, as always, curious to know what's going on with you. <laughs> That's how I start these things, just admitting I'm curious to know what your life's about. Apparently, I don't talk to you outside of this podcast. That's fair. <laughs> That's fair. I did. I had a full-blown week off for the first time in a long time, which felt really lovely. And we did a camping trip. We did a road camping trip to Yellowstone and the Grand Tetons National Parks. My boyfriend Rob and I are huge National Park enthusiasts. You know, we're one of those people. We have like a thing hanging in our house with like checked off all the ones that we've been to because we're nerds. Uh, (laughs) It's one of the best things America has ever done. You know, America hasn't done like great things all the time. But creating the National Park program was one of the greatest things that they've done. And I've never been, I've been to Yellowstone, but I haven't like been to Yellowstone, you know, so I haven't seen very Yellowstone-y things like the geysers and I haven't seen Yellowstone Falls. It was really great. It was very special and really lovely. And we're huge wildlife nerds and we saw just a bunch of stuff and it was great. (laughs) All right. I have a question about that piece, but Before I ask it, I do want to remind our listeners that the Bloodstream Podcast is made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Takeda. Yes, that's right. Takeda. Takeda. They got this website, bleedingdisorders.com, where you can learn all about Takeda's resources for and commitment to the bleeding disorders community. Takeda believes in a world free of bleeds. I co-signed that and are dedicated more than ever in their efforts to offer a wide range of programs and support to help patients throughout their treatment journey, wherever on that journey they may be. You can learn more by simply visiting bleedingdisorders.com. 
One more time, that's bleedingdisorders.com. And for their founding and ongoing support of the Bloodstream Podcast, I would just like to say thanks, Takeda. Thank you, Takeda. I'll take this moment as well to remind you all to subscribe to the Bloodstream Podcast. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all those podcast places. You can rate and review the show. Share this episode with friends or on social media. You'll find Bloodstream Media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll also find the Bloodstream blog on the podcast's homepage at bloodstreammedia.com. And as always, you can email questions, comments, or recommendations to mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. Amy, what I want to know, because I did see some photos and you just mentioned it. What wildlife encounters are we talking about? What did you all see? Yellowstone is known for its wildlife. You know, it has a large number of grizzly bears. It has a large number of wolves that they reintroduced back, I think, in like 1995. And of course, they have like these herds of buffalo and they have herds of elk. Do the buffalo just like walk around? Yes. That's like a thing? They just do that? Yes. It's a certain part of the park. It's interesting because the first couple of days we were more on the southwestern side of the park where the geysers are, World Faithful is, you know, that, that type of stuff. And we would see one or two male buffalo alone, you know, because if you're if you're wildlife nerds like we are, you know that males, you know, when they're big dominant males, they they get to have the herd, like they get to have their herd. But if you're not a big dominant male, you roam around kind of single and solo for a while. And then during mating season, you go and try to challenge the other males to try to mate. So we would see these one-off dude, male buffalo, just like walking around, which is really lovely. Really lovely. It sounds lonely. I feel bad for those guys. No, they were so pretty. They were like roaming around, you know, like in fog, like by rivers and stuff. But yeah, they're super lonely. I mean, they're not cool yet. You know, they'd be like teenage dudes, you know, just like walking around full of angst. Oh, low key brutal. Yeah, I know. You could tell they were like super angsty. Yeah. But then when you went to like the northeastern part of the park, that's where the herds are. And they don't give a flip. Like they (laughs) will walk in front of your car. There was a mother buffalo that like had her little calf following her and like the calf almost got run over and like the mom didn't even bat an eye. Like just it was. Wow. It was crazy. But they're everywhere. Wow. Up there. And that's where you see the big stuff. Like the, the wolves are up there. We did see a grizzly bear, but we saw one from the road and he was like miles and miles and miles away. So he was just like a little speck, but we did see him. That's good. Yeah, but we, that's good. You don't need him. Like there's definitely a lion. No, Patrick, we wanted him up close, man. We wanted to like see one literally right in front of our car. We saw black bears right outside of our car. But a grizzly bear, you you, you don't got to play those games. Why do you need it right outside the car? That just seems like the beginning of a movie. It does, but it's so cool. Like if Jurassic Park was a real thing, like I'd go to Jurassic Park. Oh, no. I, I am a wildlife nerd. Like I love it more than anything. Both Rob and I did. Like getting up the chase, we would get up at like four o'clock in the morning nice. and go. We would drive into the park. It was all dark, you know, so we would be there for sunrise so we could see like the animals when they were moving around and we would go. And, you know, on stuff like this, it's like it's like going on a safari in Africa. You see like a bunch of cars, you know, off to the side of the road and you get so excited you're like what's over there what's over there what's over there and then you drive up and like you're you're getting out and you're like hey what are you seeing over there people are like oh yeah there's some wolves like eating a carcass in a river and you're like what i mean it's so fun wow what was your most breathtaking or jaw-dropping moment on the trip 
We saw a male elk with a huge rack of antlers. He was walking on a little inlet on Lake Yellowstone. And because of the fires in California, it was very hazy. It just made this beautiful gray haze behind him. We were able to be on the beach and there was water in between us and his little inlet. So we weren't worried about him coming over, but we were close enough where we could like watch him in earnest. And there were only several groups of people there like it wasn't really crowded and he just was I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. he was just majestic Rob is a professional photographer so Rob you know of course was taking photos I didn't it would be worthless for me to take any photos on my phone so I just sat there and just kind of experienced him he like posed for Rob for a while <laughs> you know just like posing you know there were like some trees on this little inlet but he like just walked across and gave us a show and he was majestic you know his antlers were big enough you know he's just about to lose them you know here in this fall season like after mating season and you know they shed their antlers and then they regrow them so he was you could tell it was heavy he was all alone and he was he was majestic. It was really beautiful. And if you go to Rob's Instagram for for those of you that are wildlife nerds, because he is a wildlife nerd photographer at the Rob Bradford on Instagram, you can see a photo of our elk dude and a lot of other beautiful photos of nature and animals. And there's a lot of great landscape and other photography there at the Rob Bradford on Instagram. That sounds very restorative, very cup filling. Did it do what you had hoped that time away and time like that would do? Yeah, you know, we drove. There, we drove from California here in LA to like southern Montana to get into the park, and then we drove back. We had one 13 hour day when we drove to Mamps Lakes, it was just ridiculous. And it's so relaxing for us. I don't, I, I, we didn't, we thought we would struggle, you know, like, okay, we're just gonna have to like grin and bear it that we just have these long days, and oh, we just loved it. It was really lovely. What about you, friend? I know you had family time. You went back east. We did the family thing. Yeah, we were in Ohio, Natalie, Vivian, and I for like six days over the Labor Day weekend with a couple days on either end of that. So Vivian's now been on a total of seven planes because it was two each way to get there. So she's up to seven. She turned seven months this week. So (laughs) I'm just going to say it. Since she was born, she's been on more planes than I have. She's been on more planes than a lot of people since she was, including me. (laughs) Yeah, she's crushing. It was wonderful in a very different way. The family has this cottage on a lake in more central Ohio, and we were gathered there, the five cousins and their parents and all the littles, and it was a wonderful, energetic weekend. Unfortunately, one of the littles was sick, so that, well, there was just like a day of this baby, like, oh man, this poor baby is just like not having life. I think she was teething and also had a cold, and as I'm learning and as I've always heard about, you know, babies, it's just like there's always a sickness thing. They're always getting sick, and they're passing it to somebody, they give it to a parent, then there's a teething, and then that's a thing. And then it's just kind of like always something. So you get a bunch of babies together. Somebody's having something. But it was all wonderful. It feels kind of nice now that we're in the fall. We're on the other side of the BDC. Yeah. So let's get into the, the heart of this episode. We'll be back next week with one of our, quote, regularly scheduled episodes. But this pop-up came as a result of being able to share this audio from the Science Fair's State of Science session at the BDC. It was a 30-minute session. So we couldn't get too, too deep into any topic. But I actually think think, you know, Amy, sometimes I find that's actually really beneficial because it sort of forces whatever expert might be speaking to sort of like hit the critical information and keep moving because we just 
don't have time. Yes. And you don't have to lose everybody. And like the, you know, doctors can go off and then all of a sudden, you know, they'll be really great for like <laughs> two minutes. And then all of a sudden they're like, can't follow, you know? <laughs> a few too many pages into the chapter. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, oh, you used a word. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that word means. I'm lost. I'm done. So hopefully that's not the experience, listeners, that you'll have now. I think the 30 minute session moves pretty well. So yeah, Dr. Len Valentino, president, NHF CEO, and then Drs. Robert Sidonio and Jonathan Roberts weighing in on hemophilia, VWD, rare factor deficiencies. And then for those who are listening in real time, you'll also hear them talk a bit about the State of Science Summit that NHF is hosting that's taking place in real time right now and will be available to watch on replay for those who are interested and registered. So enjoy this discussion. Hopefully there are a couple things here that pique your interest and hopefully you know where to go next for more information about those things. There'll be links in the program notes. If you hear things mentioned in the audio, check the program notes for those links. And that's that. So without further ado, please Please enjoy the Science Fair presents the state of science in bleeding disorders with Drs. Len Valentino, Robert Sidonio, and Jonathan Roberts. Thank you to everybody for joining us. This is the Science Fair's The State of the Science session. So I'm joined by three outstanding panelists for a session such as this, Dr. Len Valentino, Dr. Robert Sidonio, and Dr. Jonathan Roberts. And I thank each of them for being a part of this. The goal of today's session is to have these three experts provide some top-line updates on the science that's driving therapy development in hemophilia, von Willebrand disease, and other inherited blood disorders, and to highlight some BDC sessions that go into more depth on various science and therapy development related topics, as well as to highlight modules, videos, and aspects of the science fair from Believe Limited, which also may interest you. All right, to get started, Len, from your point of view, what about the science pertaining to bleeding disorders is most important for patients and families to understand? And why is the science fair an important part of the bleeding disorders conference in your mind? Thanks, Patrick. That's a great question. First, thanks for having me today. You know, I think that the information that patients need is everything. I mean, we really need to, to be more transparent with our patients so that they can have all the information that's necessary to make the wise choices. The science fair is a great opportunity to get that information. I really like the modular approach that the science fair takes and it allows people to migrate through the science fair. I love the videos. The videos are amazing. And I think it's a great opportunity for people to learn at their own pace and really create their own learning curriculum and do it at the pace that they feel most comfortable. And then take that information, go back to your healthcare professional, talk to your hematologist at your treatment center about the information that you learn. Thank you. Jonathan, you're not only a hematologist, you're also a person living with hemophilia. So when you think about yourself as a young person with hemophilia, what do you think, why is it vital for our young people today to learn about the science of bleeding disorders? Yeah, very good question. You know, obviously as an individual with hemophilia and also a physician, I have kind of a dual perspective on the science of hemophilia. And I think it's really important that people understand their lived experience and how that can play into the understanding of the disorder. You know, it's very important, I think, for young people to become their own experts. To some degree, I think that every patient should understand the basics of hemophilia because they really don't know the situations that they're going to be in later on in life, whether it be in healthcare settings or social situations, different activities that they're doing. It's important for young people to kind of learn and become their own expert so that they can teach others and so that they can really live without concern of their hemophilia. I mean, I think when you're an expert on the disorder and kind of a subject matter specialist that you are able to educate others and ultimately able to keep yourself safe and do the things that you want to do and meet the different goals that you want to achieve in life. So I always encourage my patients to do things like, you know, attend the science fair, learn 
learn in a way that's easy for them to understand the basics of their disorder and the different treatments that are available so that they can really live without limits. Thank you for that. Robert, there's a lot of interest in gene therapy and novel therapy development. So while there's a lot to talk about when it comes to science and bleeding disorders, that seems like a good place to go next. Can you provide us with a big picture overview of where gene therapy and novel therapy development is right now for hemophilia and other inherited blood disorders? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously an exciting time. It's like a new golden age of therapies for hemophilia. And so, you know, gene therapy obviously is the most exciting thing, you know, the potential for short-term cure, uh, hopefully eventually long-term cure. And so, you know, we thought initially that we would be considering prescribing our, you know, gene therapy product, the one from Biomarin, but they need a little bit more data, which I think is totally reasonable. And they actually showcased their data at the ISTH meeting just last month, in which they showed up to five years of clinical data from their phase one and two day trial. It seems like at this point now, there may be potential plateau effect in which we're seeing where the factor levels are not further declining. So we know they come up really high, eventually come down, and we're hoping at some point we'll settle in at, at a certain level and stay that way for a little while. And so we're starting to get a little bit of a peak at that. Of course, the patients are doing wonderful. Their reduction in bleeding is in the excess of 90 something percent. And, you know, they're able to stay off of prophylaxis as well. And then Spark also right behind them was showing their data, approximately, you know, patients with three and four years of data from their phase one, phase two trial as well. One of the things that I think was highlighted in that study is that we're starting to learn about, you know, how are we going to, you know, manage this? Are we going to have to give steroids up front, potentially in response or use other immunomodulatory agents? And so with every one of these trials, we learn new things that hopefully will end up with a commercial product in approximately a year or two. And there obviously are a number of updates from drugs like the Tuzeran, which continues to show good results. Uh, it's a once a month injection for both hemophilia A and B with and without inhibitors. And then, you know, there was a late breaking abstract about one of the drugs called BT200, which may have some crossover appeal, which is exciting and be able to use for non-severe hemophilia for patients with severe disease that are infusing their factor products. And then most interesting for von Willebrand disease. And, and hopefully we'll see a lot more of this uh, in the upcoming years as they uh, start to do their phase three trials. So a lot of interesting updates, you know, that's obviously just a few. Thank you for providing those. As you said, there, there are a lot. I will mention when you go into the exhibit hall, that's where you will find the science fair. So if you're interested in checking out what the science fair has to offer, you go into the exhibit hall and in the bottom left corner, you actually see it says believe. It's the beginning of believe limited to the science fair. You click that and you can take the self-guided tour if you'd like to check out the whole thing, which I recommend. But if you're specifically interested in say our animated video demonstrating how AAV gene therapy works or in reading the expert quotes and infographics on our oversized trifolds, then once you click into the science fair, you can X out of the introductory video and click on the gene therapy and the future module to learn more. I would like to thank Spark Therapeutics for their support of the science fair as well. Len, I want to go to you next. That was a really helpful overview. And as Robert said, that's just a few of the many updates that are available. But what I'm curious to know from your point of view, what is it that patients and families, what does this actually mean for patients and families? All of this science and development, what should patients and families be thinking about? Well, I think what it means is a lot of head spinning. You know, it's, it's a time when, when there's unprecedented development of new products for hemophilia treatment, but we're also seeing, you know, the entry of products for von Willebrand disease, potentially for rare bleeding disorders as well, and even platelet disorders. So, you know, the, the healthcare decisions are never easy to make. 
And in most of these situations, there's never a single clear or best option that's available. So it's really important for patients to learn as much as they possibly can. As you said, the science fair is a great place to get that information, but patients need to take an active role. They need to be more informed and more active with their healthcare professionals in decision-making. Patients are the people who can express their own personal health goals, their outcome goals, their preferences, what their choices are. And I think all of those are really important for the patient, that subject matter expert in their own disease, because they have that lived experience, as Jonathan said, to be able to express that to the healthcare professional. And then through a process that we're really supporting strongly, shared decision-making, where patients where those subject matter experts and healthcare professionals come together, have that conversation, discuss what's important to each of the stakeholders. What do healthcare professionals want to see out of the treatment? What do patients want to get out of that treatment? And then through this dialogue, they can arrive at a shared decision on what the best treatment might be. And this is really important because we know that when patients participate in the decision-making process, their adherence to the treatment is greater, but even more importantly than their adherence, their level of satisfaction with the treatment and even their level of satisfaction with their healthcare professional is much higher when they've had you know, a real stake in, in that decision-making. So I think what, what patients need to do is get more involved. The first thing to get involved is get educated. Go to the science fair, learn about it, Go to other places. The NHF website has some great opportunities for you to learn, but I think it's all about educating ourselves and making empowered recipients of healthcare of all of us. I'll also mention now that most sessions, if you don't already know, from the Bleeding Disorders Conference are available on replay for 30 days for all registrants. So to Len's point about sessions and parts of the BDC where you can learn more about the science that's most applicable to you and your family and the decisions that you're coming up on, take advantage of this virtual environment and the fact that we can watch these sessions for up to 30 days after they take place. Jonathan, I want to ask you, again, as a patient and person with hemophilia, what are you paying most attention to with all of the therapy development that's going on? And then as it relates to those shared decision-making conversations that both now you and Len have touched on, when you're speaking with your patients and families, how does your being a patient inform or influence those conversations from your side? Yeah, thanks. Very, very good question. The first point about how I'm viewing and what's most important with all the new developing therapies, I think as a physician scientist and as a individual with hemophilia, it's most important what the safety and efficacy is of the different therapies and how that can fit into the individual's life. You know, I'm, I'm old enough to have remembered the, the era of the, the 1980s and, and 90s. And, you know, I had family members who had hard times through those eras. And I think as because of that, what's really remarkable about our community is how patients, patient advocacy groups, NHF, other organizations like them, and physicians and industry have all come together and really had this explosion of new therapy options. And so all of those options have been really a blessing for all of us, I think, because now we have choice and the choices that we have are safe. And that's really led to innovation. And I think as Len's point of shared decision-making and understanding what a patient's individual goals are has become really central to determining what the best therapy is for individuals with hemophilia. So I always tell my patients, you know, what therapy I'm on for myself isn't necessarily 
with the exact therapy that they should be on. You know, we talk through some of the different nuances with some of the different classes of therapies that are available, different routes of administration, and what's coming down the pipeline and what they may want to think about with things to Robert's point about gene therapy and, and other things in that regard. And thinking long-term about their life and what may be a better applicable in different even seasons of their lives. So some of my patients that are young children with hemophilia, new diagnosis, a therapy in this season of their life may be more applicable than to when they become a teenager, young adult, and then moving into working years. And then as they get towards retirement age, et cetera, I think all the different treatment options offer us that choice. So really it's important to have a good relationship with your treatment center and to have an ongoing active conversation. And, and, you know, I always do revisit with my patients with the therapy that they're on and how it's working in the different goals that they have. And that's even some of the goal setting and kind of active shared decision-making has been some of my research focus. And, you know, we'll be having more studies coming out uh, in the near future in regards to that. All of that, this shared decision-making in the land of new options is very important. And that goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Becoming an expert in your own disorder becomes that much more important for understanding all these new therapies. I'm glad you spoke to that idea of seasons as well, because it's a reminder that life isn't static and that our treatment needs, the goals that we have that are informing some of the treatment and regimen decisions these things change. And as they change, we just need to identify those changes, communicate about them with the appropriate people in our decision-making process and account for what those changes mean to the options in front of us. When you and I were young, there was not nearly the options that there are now. So depending on what someone's goals, lifestyle is today, there, there might be an option they're not aware of if they don't speak up about their goals or if they don't get educated on what all is happening scientifically. I want to again point out a part of the science fair that may be of interest. The first two modules are titled Factor 8 and Friends Reviewing the Clotting Cascade, and in particular, the Intrinsic Pathway, followed by Hemophilia B. If you take the self-guided tour that myself and the animated Dr. Morales, and that's literal, she's at, it's an animation, it's not just a very gesticulated person. The tour that we lead will take you through the entire science fair, starting with those two modules. But you're also welcome to X out of that tour and click around the modules as you see fit. And there is a quiz at the very end if you'd like to take it. If you ace your quiz, there's a cool science-y gift that you are eligible for. There's a carrot at the end of the stick. Robert Sodonio, I want to shift focus now to you. You spoke briefly in that treatment overview about some developments that are, and correct me if I'm speaking off a little bit, there's some treatment development in hemophilia that's showing it may have some benefit in von Willebrand disease. Could you maybe share a bit more the state of science and the treatment landscape for von Willebrand disease? There's been a lot of activity around von Willebrand disease and the guidelines in the recent past. So where are we? Give us a snapshot of where we are scientifically in von Willebrand disease today. Sure. I mean, you know, there's been a lot of people that have been doing a lot of great research, you know, Jonathan being one of them, the program in Wisconsin, of course, being the flagship in this country. And there's a lot of other labs that are working on, you know, projects, working on new assays. I think that's, we all can agree that we need new ways, easier ways to diagnose von Willebrands. I always joke that anybody can diagnose hemophilia, but it takes a real hematologist to diagnose von Willebrands because it is complicated. It's not as simple unless they have very severe disease. But, you know, it really started out with the guidelines coming out, both on the diagnosis and the management side. That's really sort of set the focus of what we need to work on. It highlights where there's lots of areas of research that's needed. And then, you know, sort of after that, not totally related to it, but the NHF state of the science, I know Len may talk about this a little bit more, but this is an effort that's really taken a lot of patients, providers, industry, patient advocacy groups, and really bring together those people to set the research priorities and in these individual diseases. 
and myself and Veronica Flood are uh, co-chairing the Von Willebrand one. And hopefully people will like our research priorities and the meeting is coming up where you'll hear more about this. Obviously, it's one of the many collaborations. Ultimately, you know, you're starting to see some more interest in Von Willebrand's. You're seeing some new products or products that have been on the market, trying to seek an indication for prophylaxis, von Vendi being one of them. So hopefully we'll start to see some of that data soon as that data is matured. Will 8 also has completed their prophylaxis study as well. And so we should be seeing some data from that as well. And then we're also excited about new products, one of them being BT200. It's very early in development, but they showed some data from as a late-breaking abstract at ISTH. It's a sub-Q pegylated aptamer that at a particular dose seems to reduce the clearance of VWF, thus elevating the levels. There's some nice examples of patients having their levels pushed into the almost normal range, and and it may have some crossover appeal for those with non-severe hemophilia A as well. So, you know, obviously we're interested in as many people trying to invest time and money in this, including other companies that are targeting protein S as well as a potential target to improve hemostasis. So there seems to be more interest, hopefully more people entering this space, which is very exciting. Thank you for providing that. And I do want to give Len, you the opportunity to speak about this State of the Science Research Summit. We'll talk about rare factor deficiencies too in a moment, Len, but before we get there, tell us a little bit about this summit and what's taking place there. Yeah, so the Research State of the Science Summit will be held in September, September 12, 13, 14, and 15. It's a virtual event. It's free to attend and everybody and anybody can attend including people in our community, as Jonathan referred to, the subject matter experts, the patients. We really want to amplify the patient voice and ensure the research priorities that the groups create are really focused and and seated in the gaps in care that people experience. There's six working groups that we convene. The first one is in hemophilia that's addressing research priority questions in hemophilia A and B. The second one that Robert mentioned that her and Dr. Flood are co-chairing is in von Willebrand disease, platelet disorders, and other mucocutaneous bleeding disorders. The third one is super exciting, and that's in rare and ultra-rare bleeding disorders, and that's uh, being chaired by Dr. Shapiro and Nugent. And I think that's a real opportunity for us to understand more about what the gaps are in care for rare and ultra-rare bleeding disorders. The fourth one is one that I think a lot of people will be excited about, and it's really looking at sex and gender biology and what are the challenges that girls, women, and people who have the potential to menstruate have in terms of bleeding disorders. The fifth working group is around implementation science. How do we take this research and actually improve access to care for people, improve their care, and improve the outcomes for people? And then the sixth working group is looking at infrastructure. How do we conduct science in the future? How do we develop more clinician scientists like the two that you're listening to, Dr. Sidonio and Roberts? You know, we need more young people coming into hematology. How do we foster that? And of course, how do we pay for all of this is a big question. And that working group is working on that as well. So the state of the science, I think, is going to be really exciting for people to participate in. Wow. Yeah, that's comprehensive. And this is open to all? It's open to everyone. In the United States, outside of the United States, anywhere you are, you know, please join us. We want to hear from you. I'm sure NHF will continue to be promoting it. So make sure to stay plugged in through email or social media or however you stay plugged in. That sounds very, very exciting. 
We mentioned some of the rare factor deficiencies. This is obviously not a monolith. The needs and life experience of someone who has a factor 10 deficiency is not the same as someone who has a factor 13 deficiency. But nonetheless, when we talk about our ultra rares in particular, Len, can you give us a bit of a snapshot? What's going on there scientifically that's worth mentioning? Yeah, so I think there's, again, more innovation in terms of rare and ultra rare. Robert sort of alluded to that, that there's now, you know, companies that are interested in this space. But I think there's also some academic research that's really moving forward in rare and ultra rare. One of the things that NHF is doing is that we've created five priority focus areas. And those focus areas include rare and ultra rare bleeding disorders. And it's really important that we put a special emphasis on the ultra rare bleeding disorders from the the lens of medical education, consumer ed, public policy, payer relations, and importantly, what research needs to get done to improve the outcomes for people with ultra-rare bleeding disorders. So along with von Willebrand disease and future therapies and mental health and then digital health, those are going to be the priority areas that NHF is going to be focusing on to reach our 2030 blue sky vision. You may have already heard, but just a couple of days ago as well, there were small booklets that were released for the rare community from NHF. And within the science fair, there's a module dedicated to the rare factor deficiency community that features Nicole Scappi, who's also there talking in part about Super 7 and the work that went into that publication that came out earlier this year. Jonathan, I want to ask you, you know, Len referenced the work that you and Dr. Sidonio are doing in research, as well as clinicians. You spoke earlier too briefly about some of the research that you're looking into. And I wondered if you could expand on that a little bit more. What are you looking into yourself right now in terms of research? A couple different avenues. One I, I mentioned is looking at goal heme, which is kind of an active dynamic shared decision-making tool that's been developed. And like I mentioned, there'll be some publications coming out hopefully in the near future regarding further refinement from a patient standpoint, looking at how patient input into that has been come useful for shared decision-making on various different aspects of care. Being an individual team affiliate is more than just your factor level. There's lots of aspects that go into the different therapies and the different things that we do in our lives and different goals that people have. And we know that hemophilia fits into that. So one is that and really kind of expanding on this idea of shared decision-making. And we're hoping that in future therapeutic trials for other developing therapeutics and in our community at large, and even with communication between different hemophilia treatment centers, if a patient moves from one area of the country or the world to another, that some of this unifying language can be helpful in really helping them to attain their goals. And then another aspect that Robert had mentioned was looking at improved assay development development for better diagnosis of von Willebrand disease, especially some of the different activities of von Willebrand factor. You know, it binds to collagen and platelets and, you know, different parts of the, the platelet and besides being a chaperone molecule for factor eight. And there's lots of complexities in its diagnosis. And so, you know, working with things like Robert and others are working on in refining diagnosis and management guidelines, coming up with better laboratory tests that are faster, that have more universal applicability are all important things in moving the diagnostic process for von Willebrand disease, as well as some of these new therapeutics that are coming out, finally, maybe having something that's subcutaneous in the von Willebrand space is also very important. So those are a couple big areas in which I work. I've got my hand in lots of uh, <laughs> lots of things in the, in the community from, you know, the bench kind of laboratory aspect, and then lots of therapeutic and other patient outcome measure type of research. So. Thank you for all that work. I feel very appreciative and grateful to all of the hematologists and clinicians in our community. And there's a special something when it's a fellow blood brother too. There's just another level of appreciation for your commitment. So thank you for that. 
Robert, similar question. Is there anything in particular in your research at the moment that you're working on that would be worth sharing here as we uh, move toward our wrap up? Yeah, you know, um, years ago, when emicizumab became available and made the question of whether immune tolerance was necessary if you developed an inhibitor. And so myself and Dr. Batsuli and Dr. Meeks came up with a protocol, we called it the Atlanta protocol, which we combined emicizumab with a traditional form of ITI, which was high dose factor eight. And we're giving that approximately three times a week. So Dr. Batsuli has recently shown that data updates recently at a previous meeting. And we currently have two open trials looking at this. You know, we've done it at our center. We've actually successfully tolerized a patient who was on his fifth attempt at ITI and can imagine how grueling that was for him. And he's not even an adult yet. This time looks like it's sticking. It looks well. We're working on getting the trial going. This is international efforts. You know, these are things that are going on. And if you look on clinicaltrials.gov, one of them is called ME Pups and NuVic ITI and Motivate Study. So those are where I'm spending a lot of my energy on it right now. A number of other studies, but really trying to get those going because we want to answer those questions for the community, whether it is worthwhile doing ITI, but obviously a different version, not your grandfather's ITI. So, <laughs> Yeah, I remember my version of it, but that's a story for another day. So. <laughs> <laughs> Len, I want to give you the final word in just a moment, just before reminding everybody, most sessions from BDC this year are available on replay for 30 days. So if there's any session, whether it relates to the science or some psychosocial component of life with a bleeding disorder, take advantage of the fact that that these sessions are available for 30 days. The science fair, we've got modules and videos and all kinds of assets for you to interact with to try to make the science come to life in maybe a more animated and light way than it often does. So lastly, Len, before we wrap here, any final words on the state of science and bleeding disorders, the BDC or the upcoming summit that you would like to touch on? Well, you know, this is a great opportunity. It's due to the hard work of people like Robert and Jonathan and all of the colleagues around the world that are really pushing the science forward. I think it's the renewed interest in bleeding disorders and blood disorders. BDC is a great opportunity to learn about that, but you know, we really need people to participate. Robert mentioned the clinical trials that are so important. We need people to participate in those clinical trials. We understand that people are resistant and you know somewhat skeptical about our research, given all of the things in the news about the COVID vaccines, but we really need participants. We need to hear your voice. We need to understand everything that you want from science in the future. So, you know, we're here to support you. The National Hemophilia Foundation only exists because there's people who have bleeding disorders. You know, our vision is a world without inheritable blood disorders. You know, I'd like NHF to go away at some point, right? When we have cures for inheritable blood disorders. So that's the bottom line. That's why I'm really grateful for people like Robert and Jonathan for doing the hard work. And Patrick, for you and Believe Limited for really supporting the community in that educational endeavor to make sure that they have the tools that they need to make smart decisions. Thanks again for your time. We are at the bottom of the hour. So with that, I will again thank the panelists. You are three just extraordinary individuals, and I am appreciative that you gave your time during this busy conference to this session. So thank you and enjoy the rest of your BDC, everybody. Thanks, everybody. 
Thank you, Drs. Valentino, Sedonio, and Roberts for participating in the Science Fair's State of Science session at NHF BDC 2021. Thanks, NHF, for letting us run that audio as part of today's episode. And thank you to Spark Therapeutics for their founding and ongoing support in bringing the Science Fair to life and to community across the country. Visit virtual.thesciencefair.org to take the virtual tour and visit hemophiliaforward.com to learn more about Spark's commitment to the science behind gene therapy research. And don't forget about NHF's State of the Science Research Summit taking place right now if you're listening in real time. And that'll be available on replay for a little bit of time for those who are interested and registered. Hey, next week on Wednesday, September 22nd at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern, Patrick and I will be streaming live on Facebook and YouTube. So make sure you're following Bloodstream Media on one of those channels and tune into the live because we're very fun live. I just have to say we're very fun live. And again, that is next Wednesday. <laughs> Day, September 22nd at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. And that episode will publish here right on the Bloodstream Podcast RSS feed on Friday, the following Friday, September 24th. And of course, that will include the latest from our Let's Talk podcast segment featuring our colleague, the beloved Joshua Sterling Bragg. I love that segment. So do I. And look forward to that. So that'll be coming up 22nd for the live, 24th for the podcast episode. And with that, that is all for this episode. Have a bleeding disorders or health topic? that you would like to hear us discuss? Is there an expert or a guest that you're just dying to hear from? Want to inquire about storytelling and casting opportunities for Bloodstream's podcast or Believe Limited's films? Email us, mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com or connect with Bloodstream Media on social media. Bloodstream Media is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can follow Amy Board or myself on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. And a big shout out to all committed LinkedIn users out there. <laughs> I am your host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am that other other host, Amy Board. And until next time, take self-care of yourself. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.